The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. Thanks for coming along to the Boys of Tech, episode number 43 for Monday the 16th of November 2009. My name is Edwin Herman, introducing my co-host Brett King. Hello. Welcome Brett, and also based in the US where they call football soccer, our guest this week is Frank McCabe. Welcome Frank. Hi, welcome, glad to be here. Well thank you, it's uh, our pleasure to have you on the show. It's been a bit of a bumper week, really. Uh, there's so many stories here that uh, I don't know how we're going to get through them all. We're <laughs> One at have a to time speak. and <laughs> stop when we decide to stop. We're going to have to speak very fast. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the listeners will be getting uh, their money's worth tonight, that's for sure. I guess the big story that everyone's been talking about this week is that Microsoft has basically banned a whole heap of Xbox Live accounts. They have indeed. They've, um, yeah. Basically, 600,000 plus Xbox Live, well, Xbox owners have been kicked off of um, Xbox Live. Yeah, Microsoft's trying to do this anti-piracy drive, and they claim that the the people they've kicked off their network are the ones that have modded, if you like, as they say, their Xboxes. In other words, installed extra chips so that they can read copy discs or yep either extra chips or have a modified firmware running on a regular xbox it's wow so microsoft are taking this very seriously well it's costing them a lot of money <laughs> it is it is is it is it a fair move do you think from from microsoft's point of view yes uh, anybody who mods their xbox it's quite clear in the terms and you know terms of use agreements for xbox live that you shall not mod your Xbox console. Brett, you've got an Xbox, haven't you? No, I don't have an Xbox. Oh, you don't? You've got it's, a PlayStation? It's You're the a PlayStation one console man. I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Frank, do you happen to have a, an Xbox? No, I don't. Oh, well, that makes the no. three of us then. <laughs> so, <laughs> so none of us have been kicked off the network because we weren't there to start with. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> I was hoping it to get sets to- quite a it sets quite a precedent though, doesn't it? If you think about someone, all those uh, mod- all those jailbroken iPhones, if they were if they were turfed off the telephone because uh, they jail they they broke the iPhone, that would cause an even bigger stir. It would, yeah, it would indeed. I think uh, it came a little close to that when Apple released one of their updates and it kind of bricked a lot of phones and they had to wait for the next jailbreak, but. They certainly hadn't been kicked off the the network like like the Xbox Live customers. So yeah, that would have been a huge. So this, as you said, this does set a precedence, and it just goes to show that Microsoft are, are not taking this lightly at all. And, and they've even said that uh, it's likely to be an ongoing thing, which is scary. Mm. Well, not really scary. It's kind of well, it's what you would ex- <laughs> yeah, it's what you'd expect. It is something that is in their terms of conditions. It's not like they you know, are springing something brand new on you. They're just, for the first time, enforcing something that they've reserved the right to enforce from the very beginning. It's a wake-up call, isn't it, too? 
Mm, it is a wake-up call. It, it's yeah, it means those people out there who thought that they could just you know slide by that agreement, ignore it, what it has in it, and mod their Xbox or you know install an alternative firmware on it. Yeah, it's <laughs> a wake-up call to them. It's bit them in the butt. I guess you you should. You kind of know the risks, really. I mean, if you're playing around with the hardware and or, or the firmware unofficially, you you got to expect that this could happen one day, surely. Well, you know, the people who are doing this on purpose definitely will be aware, but it's more likely to come as a shock to those, you know, those teenagers and others who've bought a pre-modded Xbox for whatever reason, maybe they wanted to play games from a different zone, which the Xbox wouldn't allow previously. And so they've bought one which allows them to play their games from wherever. And now they'll have been bitten by that. And, you know, a lot of people don't bother reading terms of use. And so when somebody actually enforces something in it, it does come as a bit of a shock to them. Well, you just made me think, what about the people who have bought second-hand modded Xboxes without knowing they've been modded. True. That Very would, true in that too. Well, I guess their recourse would be with the, the person that sold it to them because... Precisely. If they didn't disclose that, but, you know... Yeah, good, it's good. the same thing as, you know, you'd be if you've bought something that's been stolen and it's found out that it's stolen, the, the you know, the original owner has, you know, first dibs on it. So it's the same sort of thing, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's buy beware, isn't it? Yeah. These people can still play the games though, can't they? Yeah, they can still play their own games. They just can't connect to Xbox Live and do any of the multiplayer things or download extra firmware or anything like that. And I bet, they, just, can't, I bet they can't sell the console now either because it's worthless. <laughs> indeed. I guess if you've got it chipped, you could always have it unchipped. Oh, can you undo them? Can you un- reverse the, the process? Well, I don't see why you couldn't. Reverse the process. Well, if it's a hardware thing, I guess not. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Same with the firmware thing. If you've been able to update the firmware to a custom firmware which allowed you to bypass things, surely you would be able to put the original firmware back on it. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether Microsoft looks at this from a uh, you know a unit point of view or a status point of view. In other words, is that unit itself banned for life, even if it gets reversed, mm. or is it? Do they view it from the status? If it's currently modded, it's it's banned. Well, if, they're uh, obviously able to determine if it has been modded remotely. So, you know, really up to them how they want to do it. But I would assume they would go along the lines of if it's if it's you know if it equals modded, disallow. If not, then let it on. It's taken a lot of people by surprise, but. You know, but of course, the people will have to recreate new Xbox Live accounts because those ex- the original Xbox Live accounts have been completely cancelled. Well, yeah, that's true. And in fact, Microsoft have said that if they go and get a replacement console, uh, they'll they'll you know they can set up a new account and away they go. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the other big news out there is that uh, a security firm called FireEye has been analysing a botnet, and they've pretty much choked it. They've taken it down. It is, yes. Quite a spectacular thing when you read through um, what they were doing with it. Kind of like what that, you know, there we've had a previous story about another research group who temporarily took control of a botnet, but then the botnet owners got it back. This one, they actually took control of it and have been taking it apart 
And so what once was, you know, the source of 3% of the spam or so has now significantly less. Yeah. In fact, I think they've now got about a quarter of a million IP addresses uh, reporting down to a sinkhole. So that they've, so that, that's the minimum number of computers that exist. There's probably quite a few more mm. in that botnet. And all that, the, <laughs> there's good news and there's bad news. The good news, of course, is pretty obvious. That, yes, another botnet's been taken. Now, the bad news is that most of the IP addresses in there were blacklisted anyway. So the levels of spam that we'll see, uh, we won't, really won't see a decrease, at least not a noticeable one. Oh, you'll see some. Well, they, but yes. <laughs> but a lot of them were already blacklisted, so yeah, yeah, it won't be as 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 big a drop as you, you expect. The only problem, of course, well, not the problem, but the the you know the fact is that for every one of these botnets that gets busted, there's so many others out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was a particularly large one. It was a particularly large one. Had a pretty big percentage, even though three percent's pretty small. It's <laughs> big when you do take into account just the sheer number of botnets out there. I sometimes wonder where the spam thing's going to go. Like, where is? Are we just going to keep playing this cat and mouse game forever, or is there, gonna, is there an end in sight to spam? I don't think so. I think we opened a Pandora's box, and now it's just going to be the the typical evolutionary predator prey relationship. It'll always be there. They the spammers will develop new technologies, and they um. You know, the Crusaders will develop new counters to that and the Spammers will develop new and it'll just go backwards and forwards. I doubt we'll ever be rid of it. What about email 2.0? Charging a cent for every email or something. Could that work? Yeah, no. <laughs> Why not? Because it just won't. Like we said when we talked about that particular story, unless you get a 100% buy-in, it's not going to work. Yeah, but and you could have two email networks, you know, running in parallel. And then yeah, but slowly, most people aren't going to do it. Yeah, the it's, it's getting the critical mass, isn't it? That's the, yeah. the biggest thing. And what's the point of having two email networks if you're, you know, paying your one cent per email on one of them and the uh, people that you want to send to aren't? So it's going to be this forever cat and mouse game. Great. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's my opinion anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, only time will tell to be, you know, that's the only way. Hey, mm. I actually, just a, a heads up too, I, I hear that uh, Sophos is going to be providing free antivirus software for non-commercial Macintosh computers. Oh, neat. Yeah, which is, they, you know, Sophos is a, a corporate-only sort of product. They, they don't sell, you can't buy Sophos in the shops or online. It's It's for enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're not losing out because they're not selling to you know to non corporates anyway. Uh, I'm not sure why they're just doing Max. I'm not entirely sure, but that's what they're going to do. And I, I guess it gets their name out there. And yeah, you know, I thought Max didn't need this. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's been many many years since Max have been able to claim that. <laughs> there are very, there are very very few uh, uh, viruses and trojans in the wild for for Max. Yeah, you're right. There is a, definitely a lot less. The other thing, of course, is that they are less targeted anyway. So, you know, the 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 reality is that a, a Mac is less likely to be compromised. Doesn't mean it's a more secure system, but it's certainly less likely to be compromised. But it's growing. And you know, look, I run a Mac, and I look, I I don't want to confess this on the show, but I'll, I guess I'll have to. I don't run any antivirus software. Oh, 
<laughs> it's terrible. I should. I feel well. You know, it goes back to as what, what Frank was saying. You know, so, you know, I've had this Mac for a few years now, and you know, some years ago it really wasn't an issue. And I, in fact, I remember when the first Mac virus was even detected. It was like this big thing, like, oh, we've we're popular. We've got a virus. <laughs> it was it was celebrations everywhere because it, it meant that the Mac was a a serious contender now out there. <laughs> Obviously, not serious enough. <laughs> well, it's probably because the Macs are so hard to write something for. Well, yeah. Well, what the <laughs> that's not entirely true because the Unix underneath. Mm, that's yeah, true, actually. That, you yeah. are, yes, definitely. Yeah, since it's gone to OS ten, there's actually been a, a fusion of both sides. People have come from the classic environment, and people have come from the Unix side, and the, there's a lot more development now, that's true. All right, Jetstar is trialling a new SMS boarding pass system. So instead of getting a paper boarding pass, you're, you're gonna, they're going to send you an SMS, a, a text message onto your mobile phone, and that gets scanned as you walk past. You just place it on the scanner, and away uh-huh. you go. It sounds brilliant. It sounds absolutely brilliant. It's not new. It, well, it's kind of a new take on something that other airlines have done previously. It's not the first airline to be sending out electronically a boarding pass to the customers. But this is the first one which has, you know, they're sending out a, a SMS sequence which can be accepted by most mobile phones. So... Yeah, they, that's, that's their addition to this to this sort of system. Yeah, you're right. The closest we got so far before this was you needed a, a WAP compatible phone. So I, I guess it sends. I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, but I'm guessing it would probably send a link or something that you navigate to on your phone. Whereas this this mm. one we're talking about here with Jetstar is just a, a pure text SMS message. message. Yeah. yeah, a text message. Yeah, so that's going to make it a lot easier. It is. Hopefully it'll mean the congestion and the horrible waiting and queues you get when you first turn up to the airport to, to catch a plane and you've got to turn up so many hours early for whatever reason. And most of that is so that you can stand in a queue waiting for somebody to print you out a boarding pass and to take your luggage. Only to stand in the next queue for the terrorism, Jack. I- indeed. This way you'll be able to get your boarding pass and all that sort of stuff sorted out days in advance, rock on up, dump your bags, and then spend the rest of your time in the queue to be frisked and go through all of the fancy new machines which show you nude to somebody in the airport, etc. Oh, yeah, they don't mention those machines. <laughs> so there have been, you know, in the US there have been uh, electronic check-in for a long time. So unless you're, uh, in most situations, you don't end up in that queue, the first queue. So how do you check in these days, Frank, in, in the US? Well, you Would just, you-, you know, you, you just go up to an electronic terminal and you type in, you, you can swipe your, your credit card and it will find your uh, entry and it will print your boarding card. Mm-hmm. I have been in an airport where you've had to queue for those machines. <laughs> what, yes, I, I've also Washington, had to queue for those. <laughs> Washington, D.C. in particular, but... Um, I, I don't know that this is going to save that much of, your, of the total time. Well, I, I think it will save the, the cases where you do have to queue for those machines, particularly in the holiday season, mm. I think. Well, depending on what airport, of course. But uh, I know, you know, I only travel peak times. I, I seem to do all my travel around, well, the popular times, Easter, Christmas, that kind of thing. And those machines, at least here in New Zealand, I'm not sure what it's like abroad, but here in New Zealand, those, those machines in the holiday seasons are 
are just as packed. Yeah, just as yeah, yeah. Uh, at our, our local international airport. They have rope queues to get to the electronic kiosk, just as they have the rope queues to get to the, the person behind the counter. <laughs> it's just traded one for another. Of course, for the airline, it's cheaper to have the, the kiosk because oh, sure. they don't staff. have to pay for the person and those sorts of things. But this system with the SMS, I guess it's going to be even cheaper again because they don't need to have as many of the electronic kiosks. So and the, the, so the staff members on the ground can spend more of their time processing the, the luggage and less of the time having to process the people. So, Frank, you're saying most of the time in the, in the US, the electronic chicken kiosks aren't, aren't, uh, aren't too much of a problem. Well, I think it depends on the airport. Uh, you know, the San Francisco airport, which is the one I go out of mostly, it's very rarely an issue. There are times when it doesn't work. There are times when, in fact, quite often there are times when it doesn't work that you have to go and see a person anyway. Mm-hmm. And then you then you're in then you're in real trouble. I can force you. <laughs> I was just going to say I can foresee the same <laughs> issues with the SMS text system. You know, it'll say sorry, an error has you know occurred. Please go and <laughs> see. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> or or you know, those situations where your cell phone has already reached its text limit and it sent this text and it's waiting in a queue and you've got to empty all of your text messages to be able to accept the text for it. You have to show it to someone, don't you? You have to show this to, you have yeah, to show as, the, the, as you're, the um, phone. As you're heading onto the plane, it is your boarding pass. So as you're boarding the aircraft, they scan in the, the text message. And you have to show it to the security personnel too. Mm. So you have to make sure that your phone is charged and you've <laughs> you're not running out of battery and you have to charge it at home or something. <laughs> so those are the new problems to, to <laughs> be wary of for the system. But I think it's um, anything which helps, uh, you know, improve the, the efficiency and the means spending less time standing in queues in an airport is a good thing. Well, if it, if it works, yeah. In, in any case, it's, it's more choice for the, for the traveller, that's, that's mm. for sure. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty, now, what is it about uh, updates 3.0.0? We talked about the PlayStation 3 not long ago doing a firmware upgrade 3.0.0, which effectively bricked a lot of PlayStations, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it well, did indeed. Well, now, Apple's got similar issues. It's issued a 3.0.0, uh, which effectively deleted a bunch of content on Apple TVs. And they've <laughs> quickly reissued a 3.0.1, and they've sent letters to customers saying you should immediately upgrade to this version. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, they're doing exactly what Sony did with their PlayStation. <laughs> yep. Quality assurance, you know, these quality checkers is really, <laughs> something's going wrong in the process here with these big companies, but it's definitely a jinx around the 3.0.0. Yeah. <laughs> Should be like release number 13s. You don't just have, you just don't have them. <laughs> well, actually speaking of release numbers, the latest version of Safari, which I've just got is 404, which I thought was kind of ironic. <laughs> Can it find anything? <laughs> I found it, <laughs> which I thought was... Uh, a feat in itself. Uh, all right. Now, Frank, here's, here's a story that might interest you for some reason. I'm not sure why at all, but Google <laughs> Google have announced a new programming language. They're calling it Go. Frank, what's the deal with that? <laughs> well, 
so you know the, the the language itself is kind of interesting. It's a it's a it's a slight it's a cut down version of C. And uh, I talked to um, Rob Pike, the uh, one of the key inventors uh, of of the language, and he said the the thing that was the most important for them was that it compiled very quickly, which. Uh, says quite a lot about Google, if not if nothing else. But I was interested because uh, I already have a language called Go, and uh, it's actually completely different. It's in the area of logic programming, and uh, I raised an issue, issue number nine, and I didn't realize the full. I, I it took me a long time to realize the full irony of that. The uh, you know saying please change the name because I'm already using uh, Go. <laughs> a lot of people say you know a lot of people online were making comments like well why didn't Google Google the name of Go which uh, you know is is uh, might have done that yeah yeah so Rob said he did yeah they, they reckon they did they go they tried they Google Go and it turned up nothing that's what they said. <laughs> they said they did a lot of uh, they they claim he claimed that they did a lot of uh, testing looking for the looking for it. I I think the it's kind of uh, interesting because uh, you know it's obviously much bigger deal for someone like Google to pick a name than than someone like me. But what's interesting to, what you know what was interesting to me is of course when I picked the name for my language. I did some research looking to see if anyone else had used the name because picking a name for a language is almost as hard as designing the language itself. Mm. And uh, I found no one. Um, and what's kind of intrigues me now with this uh, tremendous fuss is that no one else had done it either. So I was I was expecting there to be others. I think that if you discover that someone has, you know, if you discover that you've that you've picked a name that someone else is using, then I think uh, you should back off personally. I definitely think so. You've been using this this name for what about eight or nine years now? Is that right? Right, right, right. Yeah. So, and you've, you've there's a book out, uh, Let's Go. That's, that's, I think. that's right. Yeah. Published that on Lulu. Mm-hmm. That's right. The irony of that, of course, is uh, the tutorial for Google's Go is also called Let's Go. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> oh, dear. It's just not being good for Google and they're picking <laughs> picking the names of things. So what's, right. your, what's your preferred outcome? Are you, you, you looking for money or are you looking for Google to change their name? I, you know, I, I, I don't want, I'm not expecting any money out of this, uh, but... I, what I would like, so I have two goals. The, the 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 stretch goal is that they change the name of the language. The other goal, which was my real goal, was to make sure that they knew what they were doing. You know, they're a much bigger company than I am, and uh, I didn't want to just roll over and let them do it because it made me feel very very uncomfortable doing that. Oh. So I, I raised an issue. In fact, the day the same, you know. As it happened, I picked. Uh, it was the same day that they announced the language. So, 
There's no excuse that they have no excuse if they continue to use the name Go. There's not much I can do legally uh, if if the and but they, there's no excuse if they continue to use the name then uh, then they will do so knowing that they're treading on the little guy. Well, it would mm. be nice if they could live up to their motto of "Don't be evil." Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think the decent thing. Look, if if I was them, <laughs> the decent thing, of course, would be to say, "Oh, look, sorry, you you you've been using this a lot longer than we have." We'll go choose another name. So, that's so, so they didn't do. want to do that. They, Have they, they said f- they don't want to do that? Yes, they told me that. Yeah. Well, that's not uh, looking good then, is it? No. So um, they said it would be very inconvenient, which I believe. They felt that uh, the two names could coexist, which I do not believe. Um, uh, as I said to Rob, you know, if I talk about go to someone else, you know, even if it's in a different community, which it would be a different community, um, uh, I would continually have, and I'm already, this is already happening. I know this, it's already happening. So I've, I, when I talk to my colleagues about my go, I have to prefix it or suffix it by saying this is not Google's go. Well, that's, that's frustrating, I, isn't it? Mm. That's right. And it's unfair. I shouldn't have to do that. Oh, absolutely. It's a, matter, it's a matter of principle. Yeah. And <laughs> I I just Googled Go and your Go is the, you know, the fourth one on the list. Well, it's not that's like because it's not on Google. <laughs> that, that's right. But you've got to understand that Google is in a very, very dynamic database. So, you, you know, it's hard to know what it would have been like before this this happened. In fact, I do know, though, because I Google myself every so often, like other people do, you know, I know that it was <laughs> was accessible. So, but when people say that, 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 you know, look, you look, if you look now, you'll find it. Yeah, you will. Oh, definitely. But, but <laughs> that's be- partly because of the controversy. Yeah. I wonder um, if, uh, if Google are going to rank yours any lower with secretly or something like that. Now, that would be nasty, wouldn't it? That would be evil. That would definitely be evil. Yes, I, I think that, that that would be beneath them as well. What's what's ironic, I think, is that, well, first of all, it's, you know, people have already said this about my go, that, that a lot of people have suddenly woken up and said, oh, what's this all about? And looked at my language, <clears throat> which I'm happy for, for, of course. But I suspect that more people have have, uh, have also been aware of Google's Go as a result of this as well. Um, well, I think the fact is though that this story has certainly, you know, uh, drawn a lot of publicity to the fact that you had this language first because it's all over the wires. It's it's you know, there's a lot of news sites carrying the story saying, you know, Google may have to change its name. You know, Go has already been taken by Frank McKay. Yeah, even in ago. Japanese, you know, it's even in the Japanese and the foreign language uh, sites as well. Yeah. So, so has, is is the ongoing dialogue between you and Google? I haven't uh, spoken. I've only I've only spoken to them once. Uh, I think they're probably waiting for uh, things to settle down, or maybe they're they maybe they are also looking for for names. Well, I think this would be the one chance to prove that they're not evil. So uh, I hope they do the right thing and and just back off and let you rightfully uh, continue using the name for your programming language without having to have any confusion with, with Google's offering. 
Right, right. I think that's the right thing to do. It's not like it's the first time this has happened either. Rob told me that he had a language called Squeak that was, uh, this was, you know, I don't know if you know, but Squeak is a, ver- a variant of small talk. Mm. Uh, but that wasn't his squeak, so he had to change the name of uh, his squeak to because he because he didn't know about the small talk. Oh, uh, I see. So he's already been down this road once. So he should be able to <laughs> definitely feel. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He, he's uh, and it's happened to me personally too before. I think it's a fairly normal thing for anyone coming out with a with any named entity, you know. It's it's actually I look I know how hard it is to choose names for things when even this this show here the boys of tech uh, you know trying to find a name for a for a show that says somewhat what it is you know what it's about it's a tech show it's a tech podcast uh, it's <laughs> it's kind of hard to find these names you know there's a lot of names all the good all the good names are taken that's really what it comes down to <laughs> yes. That's not actually true. If you think about, it, if you take the Go name, for example, when I when I when I sort of uh, got that, you know, it amazed me that no one else had used the name. Yeah, especially for a programming language, because right. it's kind of like you know, hit Go kind of thing, and yeah, you know, Go. So I, <laughs> so I think I think they're still out there. The names are still out there. You have to be a bit creative. So tell us think a, out of the box. <clears throat> so tell us about your programming language, the original Go. What what can you use it for? What sorts of things can you do with it? What's its uh, strong points? So I have done a lot of work in the logic programming community, and you may have heard of Prolog. Yes, Prolog didn't make it for. Well, it's been it's it's very popular. It's still being used, although you know people panic quite a bit. And one of the one of the issues with with the with Prolog that I felt was that, that from a software engineering point of view, it, it just didn't cut it. There's just too many things wrong with it. From a, from it just didn't support team building, didn't support projects that that you know involved multiple players. And, and so I wanted what I wanted to do was bring some of the concepts from software engineering into the logic programming. Uh, uh, world and it's uh, I thought it you know it was hard work I can tell you that <laughs> uh, doing that but I think I you know me and my colleagues uh, did pretty well uh, we have uh, one of the one of the things with a with a language like Java for example that makes it good for a teamwork is that everything is strongly typed which means not only the it has more implications than than just you know f- being being nasty about your program syntax errors. It means that it means that the tooling can be uh, much better. Eclipse, for example, can make suggestions and completions of of symbols. It knows it, w- when you press Control Space in Eclipse, it knows to uh, only make suggestions for names that makes sense in the type context that that that, that cursor is in. Right. And this is an enormous producti- productivity boost. It's just a, it's it's just an incredible boost. Simple things like that 
and prologue because of its wild wild nature makes that very makes that impossible as do languages like python and javascript by the way the other thing was that i added was uh, a pretty strong notion of objects it's different to the classical notion of objects but it's you know again it's it's all to do with bounding your problem making making uh making the area that you're working on as small as possible with minimum interaction with the rest of the system mm-hmm. that's what's needed to build large programs programs that can't be built by one person and unfortunately i was never financed for this so it was uh, skunk works in a side of some skunk works it was very difficult to get you know, a lot of uh, uh, effort effort behind it and it's difficult too so well a lot of good things start that way you you developed this with uh, keith clark didn't you is that that's right that's right yeah that's so right yeah. where's keith these days have, has, have you spoken to him about this this issue with google yeah, I did. Uh, he's uh, he was slightly amused by the sudden publicity. Yeah, I mean, like me, he thinks that we should try. We should keep the name, and Google should back off. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, just on as a side note, I I noticed earlier in the day, looking at the Wikipedia entry for your programming language Go. Uh, the page was was stated as being considered for deletion. Were you aware yeah, of that? I, I noticed that. I, I don't know who put that article in. So, and and I think the that's an automatically generated entry. It's not. Uh, oh, there's nothing sinister. There's nothing sinister going on. You don't think? I don't believe so. No, no. It didn't seem to me anyway. But I right. didn't dig dig that deep. Sure. Alrighty. Well, look. All the best with uh, keeping the name without having to share it with Google because it, you know, it's rightfully yours and it would be nice if they let you use that and if they went ahead and chose a different name. Yeah, you know, there's been all kinds of crazy names suggested. Uh, but one, of the ones that I, one of the ones that I like the best is Going. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think that's going to be the name of the show. <laughs> this show's going to be called Going, <laughs> definitely. I like it. Uh, Thank you. Okay, so uh, look, you know, all the best of of luck with that in any case. Thank you. There's been a Facebook design flaw discovered. Basically, the the gist of it is this. When someone creates a group on Facebook, the person that creates it is the admin. But if the admin leaves, what what actually happens is that anyone can join the group and register as a new admin. So there's, there's been a lot of groups being hijacked on Facebook. Now, you might think that's kind of logical because if an admin leaves, if the one and only admin leaves a group, mm-hmm. what do you do? You, well, indeed, you have you've got to have, have somebody admin. be able to take it over. That's right. But a lot of other social networking uh, sites have, have got a slightly different implementation. And what they do is when the admin leaves, the next in line is the person who's been there the longest and they automatically get given admin status. So, no, but which makes that requires f- tracking a whole heap of extra things. Well, <laughs> it's just a lot more logical, though, isn't it? Because then you don't <laughs> get hijacked groups. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> I it's think it's definitely uh, it's it's a slight flaw in their system. It's working as intended. <laughs> it's not a something to be. No, it's not a a fault or a a a 
bug or a glitch or anything. It's it's working how it's how it was originally designed to do. Sounds like Microsoft. It's not a bug. It's a feature. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yeah, there there needs to be some better system, and I'm sure somebody in Facebook is now working on a better system for their groups, having delegates or something like that, where the the, the leader can delegate other things. But there will there'll always be those sorts of situations where. Yeah, but where you, you, the admin will leave, and who do you give control to? Yeah, but the logical thing is to surely, as we said, as I said earlier, the logical thing to do is to give it the person who's been there the longest. Not necessarily. You want to have it someone within the group. You don't want to have it so that there's no admin. It's like I can come along oh, and true, take true. charge. It should be somebody who's already in the group, but not necessarily the person who's been there the longest. You could very well have a situation where the admin created it created the group and invited their friend and the groups existed for a year and that friend is now a complete prick <laughs> to everybody else in the group. Well then surely they'd be banned. I mean Well not necessarily. They might just be the the the, the person who disagrees with everybody but they stay there because they're the admin's friend. And then the admin leaves and who gets it? There would be somebody else who would be detrimental to the group. There's there's no way which is going to be, you know, perfect for everyone. Unless you made it some sort of, you know, democratic process where the group members that were there when the admin left could pick the new leader. I, I was going to suggest that exact process. Uh, that that's uh, that I'm involved in some various standards organisations, and this is a this is something that happens on a reasonably regular basis. The mm -hmm. the chair of a group has to you know steps down. And uh, the the members of good standing get to vote on um, on who uh, who should become chair. If that vote fails, then then the organisation, in this case Facebook, would take the administ role. Hmm. No, I, I, that would be by far the the fairest way. The, the least open to abuse. Any other system is gonna is there is the potential for it to be abused. And that's what they're talking about with this being a flaw, is the fact that it can be abused. Well, they're definitely going to have to do something about it now because people kind of know you can hijack groups fairly. And you can find these groups fairly easily, apparently. They were, I understand that it's not too hard to find these groups. So. No, no, you can do a search and find those without admins. Alrighty, now here's some, here's some news that's going to be rather contentious for, for many. Blu-ray discs are going to get what's called managed copy. So it's basically a form of DRM. It means that new players are going to have to be built to support this. It means that the publisher can decide what can get copied, how, and worse, how much for. How much are they going to charge? They can, you can basically put a fee to it. It doesn't mean you're allowed to copy for free. So this opens up a whole can of worms. Well, you know, it, it might be contentious and it might open up a huge can of worms if hardware to do any sort of managed copy protection, managed copying of Blu-ray media actually existed. <laughs> yeah, but, they, but they will. That's the thing. Eventually it might. <laughs> At the moment, in many countries, you can make copies for fair use. Uh, and then that's just a right that's granted to you under the law. In, in well, the except, copyright for, Act. except if you've got a Blu-ray disc, which you can't. Because well, right now there is no facility for fair use copying. As in, there's no ability to do it? There's, there's no ability to do it. That's the, the point of it. The, the Blu-ray discs are, they are created and there's no 
Blu-ray burner. There's no Blu-ray copier. There's. But I think what people are getting a, a little worried about is that when this thing comes into force and that there will be players that will support managed copy, is that the you know the publisher can can set a price and say, sure, you can copy this, ten dollars a copy. So you have a situation where under the law. Uh, it says, you know, if you can, you, you go ahead and you can make a copy and here are the parameters within which you you, you got to work. Yet, on the other hand, you have the situation where the publisher is saying, well, to do that, I'm going to charge you $10. Well, what I'm getting from the specification is now that they are actually building, have created a managed copy specification for Blu-ray, manufacturers will be able to create new hardware for doing it. And... By managed copy, it means that, as you're saying, the, the, the creator of the content, the creator of the, the, the disc, can determine whether or not they want that disc to be able to be copied for fair use or not. And so the, the hardware manufacturers will be creating new new players, new burners, which will check with the disc to see whether or not the disc is allowed to be copied. It doesn't mean it's going to be free. That That's the, the thing. That's the key Well, thing. it doesn't mean it's going to be free by the fact that the Blu-ray disc that you're buying has to be enabled to allow copying. And they can charge for that. And they can charge for that. So in the, in the States, uh, I don't know what this is in New Zealand, but in the States, you, you can already buy DVDs with a digital copy built in. Mm. Uh, and uh, the idea is that you, you pay more for those discs, so you choose. You can either have it or you don't, and it's usually like $5 extra. What the catch that people, uh, you know, they have to read the fine print on is that there's an expiration date on the, uh, on the, right, to digi- on the right to copy the, the, the file. So if you don't do it within a year, then you lose the right. Mm, um, I have seen that. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, but I'm pretty sure the fair use in New Zealand is the the creation of duplicate backup of the media itself. So it's not just for, for us, it wouldn't be just being able to then get an alternative digital version of the, the, the episodes on a, a DVD or the DVD itself. No, it's um, in format it's, shifting. No. Yeah. It's, it's the ability for us to generate a backup of the, that media that we have purchased itself. Correct. You, you, right now, you, you, can't, uh, you can't format shift here in New Zealand. Although the, the proposed changes to the copyright law were going to include that. I'm not sure if those have actually gone ahead or not yet, but as it <clears> stands, at, at least if, if they haven't, and certainly you know, if, if they have come into force, certainly before that, and that wasn't long ago, that, yeah, no, you can't format shift. And as you say, Brett, you can just make yourself a backup copy. And it seems, actually, it seems crazy, this whole thing anyway, because... Because you get into situations where, like, you know, you can't copy a CD onto, say, a cassette tape to play in your 1984 Toyota Corolla. It's <laughs> te- technically against the law to do that. You have to go and uh, yeah, buy yourself the, yeah. the cassette tape, which you, you can't buy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, the copyright laws have a, have a way to go. But I think uh, what I'm getting from the story, though, is that DRM is, can be nasty. I, I can understand why they have it, but. I don't know, there's, there's a dark side to it, I think. There is, and that's why most online music stores are moving away from DRM, because people don't like it. Absolutely. <laughs> you can yeah, move personally, on. I, think, I think it'll be moot 
personally. I think the the you know uh, Blu-ray won the war and uh, won the battle against uh, HD DVD and lost the war to online downloaded uh, music downloaded movies. Mm. I think it's moot. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I think I think you're right. It's I think we're quickly going to move on from from Blu-ray. Well, I think it will. It's definitely got its place, and the digital content, digital downloads, also have their place. There are still a large number of people who like to be able to have physical copies of things which are not related to their computers. There are a large number of people who don't particularly like their computers and the fact that they're constantly crashing or stuff that relies on the internet. When the internet, while it is becoming far more prevalent, prevalent in, you know, almost everywhere, the stability and the consistency of it is not at that point yet. There's a lot of talk about all sorts of things for, you know, movie streaming and digital delivery of all these different things. But until the actual infrastructure of the internet gets up to the point in all of the places that would be able to get, you know, access and utilize these different sources of media, then it's it's still going to be a moot point for a lot of that as well. In New Zealand, we pay for our bandwidth. In Australia, they get bandwidth caps. If they go up to a certain point, suddenly they're put onto massive throttling and all sorts of stuff. And that's obviously detrimental to any sort of digital delivery of anything. So until that infrastructure builds itself to a, you know, a consistent level, there's still going to be a place, in my opinion, for those physical media. Yeah, sure. The feeling I have is that Blu-ray is, is, you know, if you see a Blu-ray movie, it's very nice, very high quality. Mm. But it's not enough to if you already have a, a DVD collection. It's, oh, unless you're unless you're yep. unless you're a fanatic, you won't shift. Oh, exactly. Yes, I <laughs> I completely agree with that. I yeah, DVD is a media which is still around, and I don't see Blu-ray getting rid of DVD any point in time. I see the the internet infrastructure will probably catch up well before that thing happens. And then everything will go to a more digital delivery. Right. The issue of DRM is very naughty. You know, the, the, one, of the, the, one of the big selling points of uh, Barnes & Noble's Nook is that you can lend a book to someone else. You can lend an e-book to someone else, which is a major issue with, with most DRM, issue, DRM systems. Oh, indeed. <laughs> most DRM things, they lock it down to the one device. Right, they didn't want to let you uh, lend it to anyone, and that—that's a real bummer. So, that these folk who you know, Apple got it right when they introduced iTunes. You know, they—they they assumed that the majority of customers were honest and wanted to uh, and wanted to follow the law, and they made they made the DRM fair play system as uh, as fair as possible to those folk. Hmm. I must admit, when the iTunes store first came out and I used it, the DRM was fairly lax. It, I could do every, put it this way, I could do everything I pretty much well wanted to without having DRM saying, no, sorry, you can't do that. I was allowed to play it on up to five computers at once and I had, I think, uh, between three and four computers going with my digital downloads and that was fine, so I didn't reach my limit. I could burn it to an unlimited number of CDs and sometimes I, I did take advantage of that. So, as you said, Frank, they, the, when, when Apple 
first launched iTunes, I think they got the balance right. Hmm. Well, more right anyway than yes. Sony. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's for sure. All right, now yeah. there's been some new developments in the printing technology. Indeed there have. Pretty spectacular and shiny developments, if I must say. Absolutely. You see, colour is just one aspect of how you perceive objects. Reflectivity is another dimension that that, uh, gets thrown in the mix here. So we're talking about whether something's matte or whether something's particularly shiny or glossy. Indeed. The shiny factor. The blink factor, in fact. That's (laughs) right. So when you look at an object in real life, it's got, varying degrees of colors across it and it's uh, across the object uh, depending on on you know where it is and how the light is shining and it's yep. also got a varying degree of reflectivity in other words how shiny it is and if you can capture that as well as the 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 colors and more importantly print that uh, mm. then you get a much more lifelike image and that's what uh, some of these researchers have done now right now you can't just go out and buy a printer that will actually print the right <laughs> glossiness no no cuz <laughs> what did they find they 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 had a relatively good printer which allowed you to have i think what eight inks in it but they discovered that they needed 12 12 inks to create a uh, an image which was lifelike with proper, you know, reflectivity and proper color mixing. And yeah, none of those, those printers don't exist yet. Well, so, well, the biggest thing is really the fact that, I mean, you can build such a printer, but the biggest thing right now is that we don't have devices that capture the amount of reflectivity. We've got the cameras we've got capture colors, mm-hmm. but they don't capture reflectivity. They don't, they don't show what's particularly reflective versus what's not. Precisely. And you can tell that simply um, by looking at a, a photo or a printed picture of a of a metal, of, you know, a shiny piece of gold or a shiny piece of silver. You look at the picture and you look at it in real life and you can tell the difference there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So unless you can capture this, you're not going to be able to print it. But the, these, these researchers have managed to capture the image in such a way and print it and it, you know. Or create the image at least. Cr- yeah, I, I see that as being one of the, the, the best uses of this new printing technology is allowing people to create things with those um, colors. With those properties, uh, yeah. So yeah. like graphic artists. Yeah, graphic, graphic designers. Artists. Yep. Being able to create something which instead of having to bring in a spot color, uh, a spot color ink of a specific, you know, metallic sheen, being able to just whack it off through, the, um, through this color printer, it'd be brilliant. Well, you, I'd you, buy one. <laughs> yeah, if you can afford one. You're right about <laughs> <Sorry>. the, <laughs> Yes, with the cost of inks anyway and the fact that you have to fill up tw- 12 different inks, it'd probably be a very expensive printer. Oh, absolutely. So the, the, uh, we'll read them out. Cyan, metallic cyan, magenta, metallic magenta, yellow, metallic gold, black, metallic silver, gold foil, silver foil, finish and primer. How's mm. that? <laughs> <laughs> It prints 12 pages per day. <laughs> All right, I made that up, but that's probably not far off. No, yeah, it probably isn't far off. <laughs> but still, it, it's, a, it's a new breakthrough, being able to create those properties of color from a printer, from an ink printer. I think you're right. The, the, it'll be on generated images. That will be the biggest thing. Mm. What about projecting? What about, you know, movies? 
Wow, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, imagine being able to to capture those properties in a in a movie or even in a still image that you project. Oh, now that yeah, would be that, that would. Oh, mm. wow, that would be very world, interesting. There's a world of possibilities here. Yeah, because to think of how you would be able to do that with you know an LED projector, because with the projected projected images use the completely different color spectrum than the the printed images, so. I'd be interested. Oh, yeah. Well, it's actually reflected light you're looking at. Mm. Well, actually, so well, you could argue so is a, a printed thing on a piece of paper. It's it's ambient light that hits the paper and bounces off and hits your eye. So, yeah. but yes, it's mm, it's it's going to be a completely different kettle of fish. Mm. Well, that's given them a whole heap more work to do. <laughs> we just need some other researchers to pick that one up. Right now, YouTube's uh, experimenting with some skippable pre-roll ads. Uh, have you have you seen that? I haven't watched anything on YouTube which has had this yet, but I have seen all the announcements for it. See, so YouTube were, were dabbling with uh, in-stream ads some years ago, and they hmm. said that their research shows that up to 70% of viewers abandoned a video when confronted with a long, non-skippable pre-roll advertisement. Well, what they also found, though, is if they've dropped the length of the pre-roll down to about 15 seconds, the abandonment rate also drops down to something around 15% instead of 70. So, so the length is one you know, factor that's, that decides whether people are going to ignore it and move on, and so is the ability to skip it. So they're going to be experimenting a little bit with skippable pre-rolls, which will be interesting. Does anyone... I think... Go, go Sorry, ahead, I've seen something like this on Reuters, uh, not the skippable part. And I remember somewhere else seeing that this 15 seconds seems to be a, a magic number. And if, if, you, if, you, if you look at the videos in Reuters, uh, every video has a 15, sometimes it feels like every video has a 15 second uh, advert in front of it. <laughs> Which means that you you end up spending a lot of time watching ads if you watch a lot of videos. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) And you can't skip that. No, in the case of Reuters, you can't. No. 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 Being able to skip it is real great. Mm. Well, actually, what I get really annoyed about these days is links to news sites that instead of showing the news story, they'll show you this ad right in the middle of the screen with nothing else. And I'll give you the option, you know, after, sometimes you only get the option after a few seconds saying, you know, skip the ad and move on to the story. And you click that and uh, the page refreshes and then you get the story. That's kind of annoying, but you can kind of understand why they do it. It's, a, it's another way of picking up advertising revenue. Yeah, of sticking the ad in your face. I, I guess it, it all comes down to balance because and it's going to be, a, I think it's going to be a self-correcting thing. You know, if, if sites get it too wrong, people... You know, a bit like what we saw here with the research that YouTube have done over the last few years. If they get it wrong. People are just not going to go there, and they'll, people, they'll that'll get noticed, and so they'll have to scale it back. So it'll, I think it'll be a self balancing exercise, somewhat. Uh, you know, between uh, having something that's tolerable, uh, but having something that's still you know going to generate some revenue. Yeah, definitely, and it. It is one of those things where they are going to have to fine tune it to be something that people will be able to, you know, people will put up with because it's the internet and because it's YouTube, almost everything that they will have one of these ads for, you will find an alternative source for. 
And so if the, the ad is too in your face or too annoying or too long, then people will just go to one of the other sources of it. As you said, it depends how long the ad is because you could probably you could <laughs> conceivably spend a lot more time searching for the other version. To but other- people are more likely to spend that time searching for another version of it than watching an advert. Well, again, as I say, I think it depends on how long. And whether or not you can skip it. To be honest, I'm actually surprised that ads can even work in YouTube because, you know, the, the ones that pop up in, in a semi-transparent window in the bottom third, I, look, I don't even look at them. I, I know I do on web pages. I'll look at them for some reason. But yeah, I don't look at them in, on in, in YouTube, YouTube either. No. I just click the little X to make them go away. Yeah, it's kind of like an automatic reaction. Yeah. <laughs> you know what they could do is they can move that. They should move that little X in different to a different location, every, a random location every time. So. Oh, but that just annoy people. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're stepping over there. Nobody <laughs> likes those shockwave, you know, those flash ads which pop up and you have to hunt for the close button. <laughs> Nobody likes those. No. Oh, I think no one likes ads really, but it's a fact of life. All right now, did you see the, the, uh, the patent that Microsoft have just applied for? They've, they've applied for a patent that, and I quote, presents a user interface in response to a task being prohibited based on a user's current account not having a right to permit the task. And then it goes on to say that the interface includes an authenticator that comprises a password, and the authenticator region comprises a data entry field configured to receive the password. What does that sound like? It's pseudo. It is. (laughs) It's pseudo. It's the Unix command. They've tried to patent it. (laughs) <laughs> well, there's definitely some prior art, I think, for, for that. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pseudo with a GUI. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you can already get that if you run X, you know, X Windows on a Unix system. <laughs> there, are always, there are already plenty of GUIs for, for, for a pseudo. <laughs> it's just funny. So how, did, how did they think they could get away with that one? Did they think nobody would notice? I died. Yeah, beats me. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Maybe they've never even looked at Linux before or Unix and they have absolutely no idea and they think they've invented something completely new and fabulous. Yeah, I doubt that. <laughs> okay, I was, it was a long shot. <laughs> uh. I thought that was a funny story. It is. It is a funny story. But, you, you know, for a while. How far, how far along the pattern process do you reckon it'll get? Well, uh, my bit's uh, not very far at all. No, I don't think it should, <laughs> would get very far. Having, having said that... <laughs> well, actually, having said that, it is Microsoft pushing it, so... And not only that, but, you know... have got a lot of clout. Yeah, that's true. But not only that, the US Patent Office has been, you know, a lot of people have been criticising it for quite some time in terms of failing to adequately take into account prior art and things like that. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's anyone's guess, really. But, yeah, it's... it's <laughs> It's impressive that they that they tried. <laughs> oh dear. On this show in the past, we've talked about the issues with lithium-ion batteries exploding and you know iPods flaring, uh, catching fire in pockets and whatnot. So there's jumping a new- into the air and scaring yeah children, eleven-year-olds. I think <laughs> things yep. like that. Yes. Uh, so and actually, on planes is the other scary one. You know, laptops catching fire on planes. Oh, so it, there's indeed it can. Yeah, enclosed area with with the air quality as it currently is on airplanes, it'd be horrible. Oh, yeah. So there's a new technology out that's hopefully going to prevent that. And the the idea is that there's a substance that they place between the 
the, the positive and negative sides of the battery. And when the substance hits, I think it's around about 130 degrees Celsius, uh, it transforms from a porous material into a film and basically shuts down the reaction because... Stops it, the short circuit. It's the short circuit, absolutely. Mm. This is great. So, you can drop your iPods because that's, <laughs> that's what happens. When you drop your iPod, <laughs> they catch fire. Yep. If you have to use your laptop on an airplane without, you know, without having to worry about it. And I'm pleased about be, that because uh, I think people lost, uh, you know, lost faith in lithium-ion batteries for a while there. They were... You know, the the dangers are, you know, lithium is not a substance that you really want to have on have, have a mishap with, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it is one of the those awesome classes of metals. All right, I think we've got one more story in the international section and then we're on to the New Zealand stories. Now, this I think this is a great story. Up until now, everything in iTunes and the iTunes Music Store is done through the iTunes application. So without that, you can't get to the store unlike many other stores that are entirely web-based. So now, Apple have quietly launched this new service called iTunes Preview, and what it allows you to do is look at album and content of, of albums and artwork and what tracks are on there without firing up the, the application itself, so within the browser. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Now, you can't listen to content, all right? but you can mm-hmm. at least view what's there. So you can browse albums and look at the list, uh, you know, track listings without having to fire up iTunes because I think it is kind of annoying every time you want to go somewhere or click this for iTunes and it fires up the application and it takes forever to load. And Oh, or in those situations when you're on a machine which, you know, you're browsing the web and looking for those sorts of things, but you don't happen to be on a computer which is your computer with your iTunes library. Or even the iTunes application. Well, this yeah, would allow you to, yeah. yeah, this would well, allow you to check the, the news, check the previews, those sorts of things from any computer without having to be at your computer with um, iTunes on it. Do you think that this is a sign that iTunes is going to go web-based? It's, oh, this is a good question. It could be. It, it's definitely a, a, a foot in that direction. Because a lot of people that I, I speak to that, criticize the iTunes store, their main complaint is the fact that you have to browse it using the, the software, the client. It's a, you know, you can't browse it through the through a web browser like mm-hmm. you can many other stores, you know, Amazon MP3 and Digirama here in New Zealand and I'm sure there's heaps of others. Yeah. Uh, the Real Music Store, they're all web-based. Yeah, iTunes is one of the And iTunes is all needs... locked to its application. Yeah. So I don't know if it's, uh, it's kind of hard to guess. I don't know whether I'd... I'm kind of on the fence on this one as to whether it's going to go fully web-based. It's hard to tell. But I did wonder whether it was a sign that it was on the way. Well, yeah, you know, it could be. It could very well be a first step in that direction. It's unlikely to be become fully web-based. But what it may be, this may get, if this becomes popular, this may, this you know, just allow more options. Uh, I don't see iTunes going going web-based the way Amazon and others are web-based. You don't think they'd do that? No, I don't. No, I mean, they, I don't they it do doesn't have, seem like Apple. Yeah, yeah. They they have got their music players, the iPods, are all very well locked to their iTunes application. You're right. It's not an Apple kind of a thing, That that's for sure. Mm. I just wondered whether the pressure of... Of the but other. perhaps, yeah, the store sort of side could become more open in this, in you know, browser base, so that you can preview the sorts of songs you want, look at the news, see what's the new free song of the the 
the week, etc. And uh, perhaps even make some of those purchases on your iTunes account to have them then sync at a later date with your actual iTunes. Because right now, there's a URL behind every iTunes page and you can get that URL. And in fact, if you go to our website, boysoftech.com and click under subscribe, you'll see the iTunes pages for our podcast on there. And the thing mm-hmm. is though, it fire, it's, although it's a, it's a URL, it fires up iTunes. And if you don't have iTunes, you can't actually see that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens on it. In fact, I might have to try that, find a machine without iTunes and uh, try one of those links. Yeah, good experiment. Right, I think that's pretty much the, the, all the stories we had planned. Frank, is there anything else you want to raise? No, um, just as a sort of off, uh, while I was uh, listening to you guys, I also noticed another New Scientist article, something about contact lenses getting built-in virtual graphics. Ooh. There's, there's, uh, I would suggest that has a <laughs> lot of interesting potential. That it does. There's, this is the beginning of science fiction dream. <laughs> yeah, in eye displays. Wow, yeah. that'd be cool. Well, it it very much in the same vein as the the laser displays, where they use lasers to beam directly into your uh, the back of your eye to create a you know a, a virtual display in front of you. Can they do that? Yeah, I, I'm. You know, I'm always dubious <laughs> of the safety <laughs> yeah. of something beaming its, uh, beaming a laser light directly into my eye, but it's apparently safe. Uh, and yeah, I've been working on that, displays for that, and using it in different situations. And advertising was one of the uh, venues which was you know, <laughs> quite interested in being able to beam directly, images directly into your eye. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, well, I'll tell you what, let's wrap up the international section. We'll take a short break. When we come back, the New Zealand story for this week. Okay, welcome back. Now, for a country that prides itself on leading the way with FPOS, which is, what does that stand for, Brett? Electronic fund transfer at point of sale. Great, thank you. So pretty much what we're talking about is debit cards. Finally, New Zealand is getting smart credit cards. We're talking about chip and pin. Neat. (laughs) Yeah, about time. That's all I can say. Frank, you've had those in the US for a long time now, haven't you? Chip and pin credit cards. Uh, Yeah, although uh, none of my credit cards are like that. You still got uh, magnetic stripe ones? Yes. Magnetic stripe and sign for it. I like yeah. the signing for it. It's, 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 it's American... a part of credit card culture. <laughs> <laughs> you see, some stores have these uh, things that you can obviously you know you can wave your credit card at, but not there's not that many that do. But the chip and bin's supposed to be a lot more secure, of course, than magnetic stripe and sign. Mm, and that's why BNZ are bringing it in to help combat the credit card fraud. What amazes me, though, is the fact that we, we've been so late getting that. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've had the technology to read it for quite some time. Yeah, it's built into all FPOS terminals. <laughs> all FPOS terminals have the ability to read those chipped cards. <laughs> but we just, just haven't had the cards. Had any. <laughs> so do you know what the fraud rate is in New Zealand? No, I, I couldn't tell you, actually. No, no. No idea. What's it like in the US? 
The one person told me it was about 5%. That's, that's a lot. 5% is a huge amount. I know, I know. Mm. That's incredible. If you think of the number of um, credit transactions that would happen each day, right. <laughs> 5% of that is amazing. But, but I don't know if that's the actual number. I know that it's much lower in Europe. Do, um, what's the reason for that, do you think? Well, you know, there's a tradition of, uh, so, so in Europe, uh, the idea of giving your credit card to someone else to buy something is completely impossible, but it's a tradition that is quite widespread here. So, you, you know, you give your, it's not so common, and I would never do it personally, but people do give their kids the credit card and, uh, and people, so that, you know, they don't, they end up not being the ones that sign for it anyway. So there's a much more loose, there's a much looser culture around credit cards than, than, than the rest of the world, I would say. Yeah, um, and I know. I would definitely not let anybody else have my credit card, and I'm one of those people who's very conservative about where and when I use my credit card number, and who gets to see that. So, <laughs> right, right. That's smart. You should do that. You should keep that. Don't, don't, don't loosen up. <laughs> but, it, but it is a, traditionally much looser here, and that. And so the banks, you know, they wanted to encourage everyone to use credit cards. And so I think they, 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 they did do that, but they're paying the price now. Mm. Yeah, I remember a while ago, there was a lot of advertising about how the, the credit card companies were relaxing the need for signatures for small purchases. So if you were using your credit card to pay for, you know, a couple of groceries, like five bucks worth, you didn't need to sign for it. You just swipe your card. Right. So what happens there, I believe, is that the merchant takes the risk. Mm. In fact, come to think of it, when when I park at the airport, I pop my credit card in. It doesn't ask me for a PIN number. It just pops out again and you don't sign anything. Mm. It just charges your number. Yeah. Just like when you use your credit card online, you're not signing for it. How are you signing for it? Well, I, that's true. It's exactly the same. And I think it's, it's just the number. <laughs> yeah. And I think as Frank said, it's the, the merchant there that takes the risk. And, mm. and that's just the way it, it's been. Yep. Well, I look forward to getting a, a chip and pin card. It's at the moment BNZ only, Bank of New Zealand. The other four or five major banks here in New Zealand uh, haven't announced anything yet, but I bet your bottom dollar will be on the way. Yeah. All right, uh, that pretty much wraps up episode number 43 of The Boys of Tech. Frank, thank you very much for being our guest this week. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. And now that you're part of the Boys of Tech extended family, you're always welcome on the show. (laughs) Thank you. And look, all the best with Go. Uh, I think the best thing for you really is the the publicity and the news. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to see what happens about that. Oh, public opinion has a, is, is quite powerful. Google has shown it takes public opinion quite seriously. Yeah. So there's hope, yeah. there's hope yet. <laughs> mm. I would say I wasn't looking for it, you know. <laughs> what the publicity? I was not, I was not looking for this. Mm. So. Uh, it's, yeah. yeah, sometimes you just come up with those things where you, you just, you decide you need to take a stand for something. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Frank. Brett, thank you very much for co-hosting the show with me once again. 
Always a pleasure, Edwin. All right, thank you everyone else for joining us. We'll see you all again next week for episode number 44. Till then, take care. Bye-bye. See you later.